Morning. It's good to be back with you all today. I appreciate Pastor Chris and Pastor Garrett um, and all you guys. It's, it's a joy to, to gather here with you. We'll be in the book of Lamentations today. It's on page 801 in the uh, Black Pew Bibles. Um, definitely want to encourage you to open up. We're going to work through the whole book today. Um, and so always good to have the Word of God open so that we might read it together. Um, and while, while you are turning there, I want to remind everyone that we are a mere eight days away from the shortest day of the year. As the uh, winter solstice, December 21st, will bring us a mere, uh, what is it, nine hours and 28 minutes of sunlight. And yet, we in Charles County should count our blessings, because if we were in Reykjavik, Iceland, that day would bring us only four hours and seven minutes of sunlight. And if we were in Barrow, Alaska, which has now been renamed Utkiavik, the sun would have set at 1.29 p.m. on November 19th and would not rise again until 1.29, or sorry, 1.16 p.m. on January 22nd. That's 64 days with no sunlight. Despite the many colorful lights that mark the Christmas season, darkness at times feels like it's all around. And, and for many, this time of year is the hardest. Whether because of family difficulties or financial struggles or, or any reason, Christmas time is often a heavy and dark season for many more than we might think. And yet it's this darkness that makes the light of Christmas shine all the brighter, that makes the good news of our Savior's birth all the better. And so with this in mind, we turn to one of, if not the, darkest books in all of Scripture. Lamentations was written on the heels of Babylon's conquest of Judah. It reflects back on the destruction that the people experienced. It pulls no punches, offers no trite platitudes, but faces sorrow, darkness, and suffering directly. And that's what I would like us to, us to do today, but with the added layer of allowing Scripture to interpret Scripture. And, and by that I means we're, mean we're going to view Lamentations through the lens of Jesus Christ in hopes of seeing that darkness can only be overcome by Jesus. So let's pray together again and we'll begin. Father, I'm humbled to be here. And so grateful to be able to open your word together. God, over these next minutes, I ask that you would bless the reading of your word, that you would open up all of our hearts and ears to receive what you have to say to us. Holy Spirit, move in a mighty way. May you be glorified and exalted through what happens here, and may we be more like Christ through the power and proclamation of your word. God, we love you, and it's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. So before we begin reading, I want to just set the stage a bit more. So we're going to go all the way back to Genesis 12. God calls Abram and gives to Abram, who he changes his name to Abraham, a son Isaac, to whom he gives Jacob. And to Jacob he gives 12 sons. One of them is Joseph. And through God's providence, Joseph brings his family to Egypt to save them from a severe famine. And while in Egypt, over the years, this family becomes a people a people so numerous that Pharaoh takes notice and isn't too happy. And so he orders that all of the baby boys of this now nation, the Israelites, be killed. 
But one baby, Moses, was spared from such a fate and grew up to lead his people out of Egypt through the Exodus. God remained with Moses and the people through the wilderness. He gave them the law, his commandments, and eventually led them into the promised land. And while in this promised land, the nation began to flourish, in no small part due to one of its kings, in particular David. But after David, not to say that things were perfect beforehand, no, every person we've talked about was a sinner through and through, but after David, things really went off the rails. David's son Solomon barely made it through the end of his reign, and then his son actually allowed the kingdom to split in two, Israel in the north and Judah in the south. Israel was so wicked that God sent Assyria to wipe them out in 722 BC. Judah in the south was a little better sometimes, and so they made it to 586 BC when God sent Babylon to take them into exile. And that last part is what Lamentations is all about. Babylon has come. They have ransacked Jerusalem. The people are lamenting what has happened to them. And so Lamentations is five poems that are written to address the suffering of the people from different angles. What's fascinating to me about these poems is in spite of the chaos they describe, they are incredibly ordered. The first four are acrostics, with each stanza beginning with the next letter of the Hebrew alphabet. There's 22 letters. That's why we see 22 verses in these chapters. And this helps us understand that the words of this book are not the thoughtless, emotional outbursts of someone just wallowing in grief. No, these are thoughtful, intentional, laid-out words of lament. And then the acrostic style in particular shows us that our author, we're not certain who they are, but our author, he, he sought to provide a comprehensive response to the darkness before the people, an A to Z, if you will, response to their pain. Now, there is much that we could say about Lamentations that we will have to move past um, for the sake of time today. So I encourage you this week to take time to really dive in and dig deep into Lamentations. But for today, we'll, we'll look at each chapter in turn and try to connect it to Christ, beginning with chapter 1, where we'll see the weight of sin can only be borne by Jesus. The weight of sin can only be borne by Jesus. Let's look at the first three verses of Lamentations. How deserted lies the city, once so full of people. How like a widow is she who once was great among the nations. She who was queen among the provinces has now become a slave. Bitterly she weeps at night. Tears are upon her cheeks. Among all her lovers there is none to comfort her. All her friends have betrayed her. They have become her enemies. After affliction and harsh labor, Judah has gone into exile. She dwells among the nations. She finds no resting place. All who pursue her have overtaken her in the midst of her distress. So the people of God have fallen into deep darkness. They are personified here as this woman who, who verse 6, will call Daughter Zion. And she, who was once full of people, great, uh, a queen, has become lonely, a widow, a slave. There's no one to comfort her. Verse 3, she's been taken out of the promised land and into slavery among the nations. 
only three verses in, and, and do you feel the weight of the sorrow of the people on display here? It makes me want to ask why, a question that we often ask when tragedy strikes. Why? How, how could this happen? How is actually the first word in, in chapters 1, 2, and 4, and is the Hebrew title of this book. They don't call it Lamentations, they call it How. And we don't have to wait long to get our answer. Look, look at verse 5. Her foes have become her masters. Her enemies are at ease. The Lord has brought her grief because of her many sins. It was the people's sin that had brought this state of affairs upon them. And when we see this throughout the chapter, verse 8, Jerusalem sinned greatly and so has become unclean. 14, my sins have been bound into a yoke. By his hands they were woven together. 20, in my heart I am disturbed, for I have been most rebellious. 22, you have dealt with me because of all my sins. To, to summarize chapter 1 of Lamentations, the people are suffering because of their sin. Yes, the surface level reason was because Babylon had came and brought destruction. And then beneath that is the fact that God himself sent Babylon. But at the end of the day, he sent Babylon to do what they did because of the people's sin. And the people, they, they don't shy away from attributing responsibility to God. They understand that God is at work in this. We'll see this especially in chapter 2. But, but they are aware of this because they know why he's done this. We, we see this clearly in verse 18. Look, look with me in Lamentations 1.18. The Lord is righteous, yet I rebelled against his command. But despite that, it didn't stop them from, from crying out to him. That he would see their state, they call in, in verse 20. Because you have to understand that they recognize two things to be true. First, God had brought about their destruction because of their sin. They did not make any excuses. They did not try to explain away what happened. They knew they had sinned and that their current state was the result of their own sin. The second thing they knew was that God was the only one they could turn to in order to make things right. And so they called out to him in lament, which would probably be good to define in a sermon on lamentations. So, so here's, here's what lament is. Lament is a prayer to God in light of his past faithfulness because of present suffering with the hope for future deliverance. So the people were presently suffering. That much is absolutely clear. They needed future deliverance. And so they cry out to God, they pray to him because of his past faithfulness, because of who he is, they turn to him. Now, friends, you and I, we are sinners just as much as the people were here. We, too, live in a world stained by sin, and we feel the weight of sin daily. We all have suffered, whether because of our own sin as the people here, or the sin of another against us, or even simply living in a world stained by sin. Every one of us feels its weight. What's, what's the quote? Life is pain. Anyone who says differently is selling something. And so, like the people here, we are to cry out to God. We turn to him and say, say God, why? How? How? Won't you look? Can, can, you, can you see what is happening? And for us, 
we have the blessing, the benefit, as Pastor Chris said earlier, of being on this side of the cross, because we know the answer to all of those questions is found in the person and work of Jesus Christ. The, the people of God in Lamentations, they bore the weight of their sin, and it crushed them. But Jesus came, God himself, in the flesh to bear that burden for us. 1 John 3, 5, you know that he appeared in order to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. You see, in Jesus we have one who is able to bear the full weight of sin, who did bear the full weight of sin, and who did so in order that we might be free from it. So whereas the people of God looked around at their destruction and cried out, See, Lord, won't you? We know that God has seen He has looked and he sent Jesus, the only one who could bear the full weight of sin for us. Let's continue to chapter 2 where we see the wrath of God can only be satisfied by Jesus. Wrath of God can only be satisfied by Jesus. So if if chapter 1 focuses on the sin of the people as the main reason for their destruction, chapter 2 focuses on the, the, the next key reason, the wrath of God. Because it wasn't as if God's people's sin reached a certain level which automatically triggered destruction. No, God himself actively judged the people. He acted against them. He brought about their suffering. Chapter 2 takes this head on. Read with me as as I try to help emphasize this, um, starting in verse 1 of chapter 2. How the Lord has covered the daughter of Zion with the cloud of his anger. He has hurled down the splendor of Israel from heaven to earth. He has not remembered his footstool in the day of his anger. Without pity, the Lord has swallowed up all the dwellings of Jacob. In his wrath, he has torn down the strongholds of the daughter of Judah. He has brought her kingdom and its princes down to the ground in dishonor. In fierce anger, he has cut off every horn of Israel. He has withdrawn his right hand at the approach of the enemy. He has burned in Jacob like a flaming fire that consumes everything around it. Like an enemy, he has strung his bow. His right hand is ready like a foe. He has slain all who were pleasing to the eye. He has poured out his wrath like fire on the tent of the daughter of Zion. The Lord is like an enemy. He has swallowed up Israel. He has swallowed up all her palaces and destroyed her strongholds. He has multiplied mourning and lamentation for the daughter of Judah. How do we, how do we reconcile? How do we square this picture of God with the one we are prone to hold ourselves? Isn't God our gentle, gracious, good father? Well, Lamentations 2 serves to teach us that our God is a God of justice. So let's walk through a a, a brief primer on the wrath of God. So God's wrath is not like that of an abusive father or a passive-aggressive spouse. It is, God's wrath is the holy and right outflowing of his justice. He, He had given his people countless opportunities to repent. They did not. They continued violating their covenant with him. And so, in light of that, God displayed his wrath on his people because of their long-term, unrepentant sin. And yet, in spite of all that, in spite of the severity about what we just read, God still was being merciful. 
you see Leviticus 26 and Deuteronomy 28, they outline what is to happen to the people if they forsake the covenant, if they fail to uphold what they have covenanted, what they've committed themselves to do to God before him, what will happen? Well, well, some of it has come true here, but much of it hasn't. God still showed restraint, still showed mercy in the face of the people's sin. He could have completely wiped them out any time they transgressed, they violated the covenant, and yet he still relents even here. We still have covenantal language. They're still called his people. They still use the name the Lord, the covenant name of God. In spite of their sin, God shows mercy. Now, that's not to take away from the severity of their suffering. Verses 6 to 10 here pan the camera out, beginning with the temple throughout the city of Jerusalem to show a top-to-bottom devastation. And then our our author looks... uh, through the people's options of who might be able to heal them. Verse 14, nope, not the prophets, because they did not expose your sin. Verses 15 and 16, it's not the passers-by, it's certainly not the enemies. So where can we turn? Well, verse 18 of Lamentations 2, the hearts of the people cry out to the Lord. O wall of the daughter of Zion, let your tears flow like a river day and night. Give yourself no relief, your eyes no rest. Arise, cry out in the night as the watches of the night begin. Pour out your heart like water in the presence of the Lord. Lift up your hands to him for the lives of your children who faint from hunger at the head of every street. So despite having just received God's wrath, the people knew that he was the only one who could save them. He was the only one who could get them out of their current state. And we'll get to how they hoped God to get them out of this in chapter 5. But for now, we need to consider the role of God's wrath in our lives. If we established in chapter 1 that we too are sinners and thus are deserving of the wrath of God, why should we not expect him to pour out his wrath on us as he did on his people here? Romans 5, 8 to 9, God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since, therefore, we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. (laughs) Jesus, the Lamb of God who lived a perfect life. Well, he lived a perfect life, and so then when he went to the cross, he had no sins of his own to atone for, no sins of his own to to, to pay for, if you will, meaning his death on the cross could be a substitute for our own. And he could take on the wrath of God that we deserved. And since he's God, his life is of infinite worth. And so he was able to satisfy the wrath of God for all who would believe in him, for all who would receive his gift of salvation. So while we today are no less deserving of the wrath of God than his people were here, we have received mercy in the person of Jesus who has spared us from the wrath of God and has given us life and salvation and hope, which is precisely what we'll turn to for chapter 3. The hope that endures can only be found in Jesus. 
hope that endures can only be found in Jesus. You'll notice if you're looking at your Bible for verse, or sorry, for chapter three, um, there's an increase in verses. Not an increase in length, just an increase in verses. We're now looking at 66. Well, and that's because, whereas for chapters one and two, each stanza, each, each chunk began with the next letter of the Hebrew alphabet. That pattern is tripled here for chapter three, and each line begins with that next letter. This is an intentional design meant to focus us in on what is the climax of the book, which is common for Hebrew poetry. Often the climax is found in the middle, not at the end. It's, it's like a mountain. And so here we are scaling to the precipice of chapter 3. We're at the pinnacle of this book. But that's not found until the middle of chapter 3, so we have to get through another retelling of the people's suffering first. And in this chapter, the people are personified as a man. Verse 1, the man who has seen affliction. And our author describes the people's affliction in, in a unique way. Listen here for verses 1 to 6 of Lamentations 3. I am the man who has seen affliction by the rod of his wrath. He has driven me away and made me walk in darkness rather than light. Indeed, he has turned his hand against me again and again all day long. He has made my skin and my flesh grow old and has broken my bones. He has besieged me and surrounded me with bitterness and hardship. He has made me dwell in darkness like those long dead. We could keep going, but, but did you catch who is the source of their affliction? He. Just over and over again, it's, it's he. Not the Lord, not God, as we've seen in chapters 1 and 2, just, just he. It's, it's almost as if the people are so beat down and discouraged that they can't even name him, just he. In, in fact, we, we see their rock bottom in verses 17 to 20. Let's read them. I have been deprived of peace. I have forgotten what prosperity is. So I say my splendor is gone and all that I hoped for from, or sorry, and all that I hope from the Lord. I remember my affliction and my wandering, the bitterness and the gall. I well remember them, and my soul is cast down within me. But all of this, in fact, all of Lamentations has been bringing us to this point. Bringing us to what is about to be the great high note in a book that is otherwise decidedly set in a minor key. Lamentations 3, 21-24. Yet this I call to mind, and therefore I have hope. Because of the Lord's great love, we are not consumed, for his compassions never fail. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. I say to myself, the Lord is my portion, therefore I will wait for him. If you have any history with church, this is likely not the first time you've heard these verses. Maybe you've seen them on a coffee cup set in beautiful cursive script atop a, a peaceful meadow or a babbling brook. I hate those images. These verses do not belong over a tranquil valley. They belong over a war zone. We've just had two and a half chapters of devastation wrought by a just God because of his people's horrific sin. Lives have been lost. The temple has been leveled and the people are in exile. And yet, it is in the midst of this darkness that a light shines. 
because of the Lord's great love, we are not consumed, for his compassions never fail. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. We see these same aspects of God's character, great love, compassion, faithfulness, uh, linked together in Exodus 34, 6, another uh, pinnacle of who God is. God describes himself, the Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness. It's this passage that gets right at the heart of who God is. And so for our author to use those same terms here is his way of saying, this is who God is. Even in the dense fog of suffering, he recalls who the Lord truly is. And that is going to make all the difference going forward. Immediately after this passage, we see that God is good in verses 25 to 30. He's just in 31 to 36, and he is the Lord in 37 to 39, speaking to his rule over all of the nations. And yet, the suffering of the people still remain. We're brought right back down to earth in verse 40 through 54. It's not as if everything just dried up the moment that he realized, oh, right, yeah, God is good. Every no, the suffering remained, and yet... This chapter ends with a bold call for God to act. The assurance that God is with them and even telling of God speaking. Look at verse 57. You came near when I called you and you said, do not fear. Oh Lord, you took up my case. You redeemed my life. You see, hope is not found in a change of circumstance. It's found in what you know to be true despite the situation in front of you. In our case here, that knowledge was of who God is. A wonderful uh, example of that today is found in the excellent children's book, uh, The Moon is Always Round, which, as the title suggests, says that even when it doesn't look round, maybe it's a crescent, maybe it's a half circle, yeah, I don't know, shapes of the moon, regardless, the moon, in fact, is always round. And the author uses, us, uses that to remind us that God, even when circumstances might say otherwise, is always good. So perhaps you're thinking, all right, Brian, I, I hear you. How, do you. how do you know this is true? How do you know that the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases? Because in my life, it sure feels like it has. It doesn't feel like I've got new compassion from God every morning or that God's faithfulness is great to me. That's just not my experience. Well, if you're thinking that or something along those lines, I want, I want to point you right to Jesus. He is the ultimate source of this enduring hope that our author speaks of. Y'all know John 3.16. For God so loved the world, he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. Ephesians 2.4 builds on this. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. So if you are looking for hope that can endure even the worst storms of life, look to Jesus. He will not let you down. Go to chapter 4, where we see the consequences of sin can only be removed by Jesus. The consequences of sin can only be removed by Jesus. So we, we had our, our mountaintop in chapter 3, and now we're, we're, we're back in the trenches, but with a few important differences. First, our acrostic form has been shortened. 
Each stanza now only has two lines, so each verse is much shorter than it was in chapters 1 and 2. And second, the focus of chapter 4 is on a specific aspect of the people's suffering, on the siege of Jerusalem. You see, Jerusalem was a mighty city. Its walls were high, its people were strong, it was a fortress. Up to this point, it, is, it had already withstood attempted invasion by Egypt, Israel, Assyria, and Babylon. But, but here, Babylon has come back. And rather than just throwing wave after wave of soldiers against this unbreakable wall, they set up a siege, which is to say they surrounded the city and waited. No one could come in to bring supplies. No one could go out of the city to harvest crops or to get animals from the surrounding fields. They were isolated. And it was only a matter of time before the people within either died or surrendered. It was brutal, and that, what we, that is what's being described in chapter 4. Jerusalem is under siege, and the people are suffering. We'll pick up in verse 7, where the author is reflecting back on what life was like before versus now during the siege. Verses 7 to 11. Their princes were brighter than snow and whiter than milk, their bodies more ruddy than rubies, their appearance like sapphires. But now they are blacker than soot. They are not recognized in the streets. Their skin has, has shriveled in their bones. It has become as dry as a stick. Those killed by the sword are, are better off than those who die of famine. Racked with hunger, they waste away for lack of food from the field. With their own hands, compassionate women have cooked their own children who became their food when my people were destroyed. The Lord has given full vent to his wrath. He has poured out his fierce anger. He kindled a fire in Zion that consumed her foundations. Again, the suffering of the people is severe. We see themes of, of their sin and, and God's wrath, but it just feels even heavier here after the high note from chapter 3. <laughs> but, but what distinguishes chapter 4 is not just this continued retelling of the suffering, it's, it's what happens next. After this initial listing of the sorrows of the people in light of the siege, you have verses 12 to 20, which take a step back and try to figure out why this is happening and who they can turn to. So we, we, we saw earlier that they, they turn to God, but now we, we go through again in more depth to see who can do something about this. Verses 12 to 16 reveal that in addition to the sin of the people that we, we've covered earlier, the failings of the leaders of the people led to this suffering. Their prophets failed to proclaim the word of God to the people. They opted rather for, for softer, more, more pleasant, more appealing words instead. Their priests failed the people by, by failing to uphold the high standards that God word, God's word called them to. And even their kings failed to pursue the common good. They instead selfishly advanced their own interests. So it's not just the sin of the people, it's, it's their leaders, which I would encourage you, so we don't have kings, but we do have pastors, to pray for your pastors. It only takes a quick Google search to see the devastation that a pastor's failing can bring on an entire region. So pray for your pastors. Don't hold them to, a, uh, or to a, a too high of a standard as if they were holier than thou. No, they are men 
like you, but they need your prayers. Verse 17, after recounting the failings of the, leading, of the leaders, our author looks around trying to see who can save them and again comes up empty. Other nations can't help. The people certainly can't save themselves. And their king can't, the one that they've tried to hold up to this pedestal because he's been captured and is in Babylon. No one can save them from the consequences of their sin. But the chapter ends on an interesting note. Read with me verse 21. Rejoice and be glad, O daughter of Edom, you who live in the land of Uz. But to you also the cup will be passed. You will be drunk and stripped naked. O daughter of Zion, your punishment will end. He will not prolong your exile. But, O daughter of Edom, he will punish your sin and expose your wickedness. So Edom, neighboring nation, comes from Esau, going back to the Jacob in Genesis that we talked about. Edom was one of God's people's worst enemies. In fact, in this context, Edom helped Babylon in their siege of Jerusalem and were such a help that after it was all said and done, Babylon gave them a bunch of the outlying land in Judah as a, as a thank you for your help. And so what our author is telling this nation Okay, Edom, enjoy living this, this high life while you can, because the same wrath of God that we've experienced, it's coming for you. Which I suppose is good news in a sort of you know, misery loves company kind of way, but, but, the, but the real good news, that hits in verse 22. Your punishment will end, daughter of Zion. That's, that's the people of God. He will not prolong your exile. Which is to say... The end of your punishment is in sight. God won't lengthen your exile in Babylon. And so finally, in the last verse of the fourth chapter of this book, we get a hint at the end of the people's suffering. The consequences of their sin will not continue forever. The end is coming, as is ours. We, too, no matter what sorrow, what suffering, what darkness we're walking through. It won't last forever. There will be an end. Weeping may tarry for the night, but joy comes with the morning. And we know this to be true because while, while God told Judah their punishment was accomplished here, Jesus on the cross told us with three little words, it is finished. Again, Jesus bore our sin, removed the eternal consequences of our sin from us, and took them onto himself. And then on the third day, he rose from the grave, showing that the consequences of sin had been removed. They no longer had the final say. He did. And so I can offer you no better remedy than whatever you're walking through than Jesus himself. He is the light of life. He's the savior of the world, the only one who can forever remove the consequences of your sin. Now, I want to be careful here that we don't see Jesus as a get-out-of-jail-free card. Oh, so you're saying if I become a Christian today, all of my suffering goes away? No, we, we've seen time and again that despite the people's recognition of who God is, their suffering endured. We're talking about eternal consequences of sin that Jesus has removed from us fully through his death, burial resurrection. So do you believe in him? Have you given him your life? I pray that you would. We've got one chapter left. 
and in it we'll see that the grace of God can only be applied to us by Jesus. Grace of God can only be applied to us by Jesus. Chapter 5 is far and away the shortest chapter of the book. The stanzas and acrostic structure are gone in favor of a staccato-like rapid-fire retelling of what's happened. And the whole chapter is a prayer to God. You can read back through Lamentations 4, God's hardly mentioned. Chapter 3, it was kind of this distant, just he. Chapter 4, he's almost absent. But chapter 5 is a prayer directed to him. And this prayer begins as their other requests have. Verse 1, remember, O Lord, what has happened to us. Look and see our disgrace. They want God to remember, to look and see, which is they want him to act in light of what's happening. They don't think God has forgotten and they need to jog his memory. Hey, remember, Lord. No. Let, me, let me give this example. It'd be like you're with your best friend and they're creating a giant Lego structure. Okay, and so they've been working on it all day and they stand up and as they stand up, they knock it over and it shatters. So they turn to you and they say, look, see what's happened. They don't want you to say, oh, well, well, friend, you've destroyed your Lego structure. That's what's happened. And then go back to whatever you're doing. No, <laughs> they want you to act in light of what you've seen. They want you to help them. And so the people of God want him to act in light of what's happened to them. And, and so, again, what has happened to them? Well, verses 2 all the way to verse 18 recap one last time the horrible suffering which all have experienced. Young, old, men, women, rich, poor, Everyone has suffered. And they'll make their, fi their final request in verse 19, but let me say one thing on the volume of the sorrow of this chapter and then of the book as a whole, because I think, I think oftentimes when we share our pain with God, when, when we share our sorrow with him, we're, we try to move past it too quickly. We want to get straight to the part where God fixes everything, where we affirm that he's in control and he's good and we're certain he'll act. And that's right and, and, and good and correct, but, but so is being honest, really honest with God about what we're dealing with. Chapter 5 is 17 verses of recounting sorrow, five of requests for um, res restoration, but dramatically the scales fall in line of retelling, recounting sorrows. You see, there's nothing holy there's nothing righteous about being in denial before God about what's going on, about what you're dealing with. He, he already knows what you're going through, so, so be honest with God. Cry out to him. List your sorrows as his people did here. He will hear you. And then the book of Lamentations ends with this final request to God, verse 19. You, O Lord, reign forever. Your throne endures from generation to generation. Why do you always forget us? Why do you forsake us so long? Restore us to yourself, O Lord, that we may return. Renew our days as of old, unless you have utterly rejected us and are angry with us beyond measure. Verse 19 has just an amazing perspective to have. Even after everything they've endured, even at the hand of God, you, Lord, reign forever. They understand that their present circumstances don't, don't change God's eternal nature. He remains sovereign, even in the midst of their pain, as he does with ours. 
And they trusted that he could work even through the worst of circumstances to bring about his good plan. Which, of course, we know that he can. Because what's the worst thing that's ever happened in history? It's the crucifixion of Jesus. And yet here's how Acts 2.23 describes that act. This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. So God took the worst thing that has ever happened, the perfect, spotless Son of God, dying a criminal's death on the cross, and he used it to bring salvation for all who would believe in Jesus. This is what grace looks like. And it's this grace that the people ask for in verse 21. Restore us to yourself, O Lord, that we may return. They wanted to be back in right relationship with God, but they knew they couldn't get there on their own. They needed God to act graciously, to rescue them from their sorry state, to restore their lives. And that's precisely what each and every one of us need today. The difference between us and them is that they were not sure if God would ever restore them. This book ends with a hanging question mark. Renew our days as of old, unless you have utterly rejected us and are angry with us beyond measure. But in God's wonderful providence, we don't have to wonder as the people did here. We, we know that God has extended grace, that he sent a rescuer, and his name is Jesus. I pray that by diving into the darkness of lamentations, we've been able to see just how bright and just how good the news of Jesus is for us today. We live in a broken, sinful, fallen world where suffering is a matter of when, not if. Every one of us is a single phone call away from tragedy, from having our worlds turned upside down. Where the Christmas season is often the hardest for so many. Into this darkness, God sent a rescuer, a deliverer, a savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign unto you. You will find the baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly hosts, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. Would you pray with me? God, we feel the weight of sin. We are aware of how quickly our hearts are to turn from you, to turn from your word. God, to engage in selfish activities, to, to do what we think is best, not you. God, we are aware that we deserve your wrath. Because we have sinned against you, we have gone against your law, against who you are, we have rebelled. Yet, God, you love us still. You did not leave us. You did not fully punish us as we deserved. You showed mercy. You sent Jesus, your son, that we might be saved. God, we are so, so grateful. Lord, words fail me. We did not deserve this. We have no right to claim it, and yet you extend grace and forgiveness freely. Lord, you are so, so good to us, and we praise you for who you are. God, do not allow us to minimize the darkness of this world, 
May we not just paint a smile on our faces and pretend that everything's all right, God. Give us the humility to be honest about the struggles that we walk through. Lord, your word has given us five glorious chapters of just that. So Lord, may, may we not shirk from telling the truth, especially to you, God, but may we also not view our sorrows, our suffering, our darkness as having the last word. God, you have the last word. And so, Lord, we hold up all of who we are to you and ask that you would take us, cleanse us from our sin, bring us into right relationship with you, and make us like Christ. God, forgive us when we fail. Remain near to us in the dark times. God, may Christmas serve to remind us that you have not left us in our darkness, but have come to illuminate our lives, to illuminate the world for your glory. So God, may we live in light of that every day, bringing you praise through who we are and what we do, for you deserve nothing less. God, we love you so much, and it's in Jesus' holy and perfect name that we pray. Amen.